We read together to remind us of where we are going, that is towards Jesus, allowing the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the family of God to form a fidelity of allegiance to him alone. Please read aloud with me as we confess this together. We believe the gospel is the good news that God our Father, the Creator, out of his great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin, Satan, death, and hell, and to renew all things in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, to establish his kingdom through his people who participate in loyal allegiance in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is for God's great glory and our profound joy. Well, good morning. Welcome to church. Glad you're here. My name is Matthew. One of the pastors here, if we haven't had a chance to meet. Really glad you're in the room or watching online. I want to invite you to open up scripture to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 is kind of where we'll be today. We've been walking through this gospel of Matthew and uh, looking at the King Jesus gospel. And if you want to take some notes, follow along. There's a QR code on the screen that allow you to, to scan that in and get that going. Um, while you're turning to Matthew chapter 11 this last week we announced that starting in September uh, we are beginning some new service times as we make room for more people so starting in September our Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10:45 a.m. everybody say 9 a.m. 10:45 a.m. All right, we're going to continue. We're going to hear you're going to hear us talk about it more and more. We don't want you to miss it. That's not next Sunday. That's the first Sunday in September, all right? So mark your calendars. You'll hear more about it for sure. But uh, we're looking forward to this next season of time together here in the fall and uh, are anticipating God doing big things among us as he remains faithful and we remain faithful to respond in faith. Amen? All right, hey, Matthew chapter 11 is where we're at. It says this. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all of these things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and good news is being preached to the poor. And he added this, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he, was he a reek weed swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No. People with expensive clothes live in palaces. Where, were you looking for a prophet? Yes. And he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, all of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet, 
even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. For before John came, all the prophets and the law of Moses look forward to his present time. And if you are willing to accept what I say, he is Elijah, the one the prophet said would come. And anyone who hears uh, with ears to hear should listen and understand. To what can I compare this generation? It is like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends, we played a wedding song and you didn't dance. We played a funeral song and you didn't mourn. For John didn't spend time eating and drinking. And you say, he's possessed by a demon. The son of man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is to be, uh, wisdom is shown to be right by its results. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns where he was and where he had been, done so many miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on judgment day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you uh, be honored in heaven? No. You will go down to the place of the dead. For if the miracles I did for you had been done in wicked Sodom, it would still be here today. I tell you, even Sodom will be better off on judgment day than you. And all the people of God said, whoa. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are your words that we have recorded. Would you help us be among those who have ears so that we can hear what you are saying to us today? We pray this in the name of the Father who loves us, the Son who died for us, and the Spirit who abides and lives within us. We pray, amen. Have you ever uh, done one of those uh, books, uh, maybe when you were going on a, a little road trip, uh, Where's Waldo? Anybody remember Where's Waldo? Thought about dressing like him, but I decided that would be a little over the top for to Sunday, and frankly, I didn't want to, so I didn't. Where's Waldo? I, I love these books. I remember as a kid when we would go on uh, summer road trips, uh, we would go and we would get these Where's Waldo books, and we would spend hours just looking, and the, the random thing about Waldo, he looked a specific way, but everything around him looked similar, and because you knew what you were looking for, everything that you saw reminded you of that Waldo. Isn't that true? Like when you were looking for something specific and your eyes had been open to see Waldo on the previous page, by the time you got to the next page, you're like, okay, is that him? Oh, no, I'm just kidding. That wasn't really him. And, and you're not sure if it's really him, but then you double check to make sure it is. And it's like this big search for where's Waldo? I wonder if maybe this is kind of what the Apostle John was thinking about when he was sitting in prison and he's looking around and he's hearing all the things about Jesus and all the things that have been happening. He's like, hey disciples, I need you to go. I, I think this is the Messiah. It looks like it could be the Messiah, but I don't want to be fooled by the Messiah. Can you go make sure that this is him? Make sure this is Jesus. Where is Jesus? And he wanted to look and to see and to, to wonder. You know, there's an interesting phenomenon that we experience in our life, and it's something called confirmation bias. 
Where, where your brain, um, where it's not previously aware or awake of certain things, but all of a sudden, uh, because you have some familiar, some interaction with that thing, all of a sudden you're, you start to look for it, and subconsciously you begin to find it everywhere you go. Like for instance, um, when you start uh, maybe shopping for a specific car, and you look for the car and the color and you're like, man, I've never seen any of these around town before. And then all of a sudden over the next three days, the only car you see, oh my gosh, there's one. There's another one. There's another one. I thought I was getting a unique car. <laughs> and all of a sudden you see it everywhere. You begin to see what you were looking for. You begin to see what it was you were looking for, which can flip on the other side because we often live in our own echo chambers where we're listening to people who think like us, talk like us, dress like us, act like us, and are just confirming our own bias about life and truth and understanding. We all fall prey to the algorithms of our own life. Your online social media, your web search, all of those things, they've been tracking and understanding and they aren't feeding you the information necessarily that you're looking for. They're feeding you information that is consistent with what you have looked for. They're just giving you an algorithm of life. And so you drive the same way. You shop in the same places. You look in the same things, which upsets many of you because you go to Walmart and you're like, it was just here last week. And they moved it on you. You're like, where did it go? I was right here. Because there's an algorithm and a rhythm to your own life and your own pursuit. And the things that you're looking for are normally in one place. And I've looked here my whole life. And here it is. But all of a sudden, it's not here anymore. And what's going on now? And, and we're living with this search and this wondering and this looking for where is God? Where are these things? And I think for many people, whenever we encounter something in our life that upsets the algorithm of our faith... When we encounter something that we thought was Waldo, but it wasn't really Waldo. When we come and we bump up against some teaching, some video, something that we thought this was the truth of our life, all of a sudden to realize that maybe that wasn't the truth. Or maybe it was the truth, but now I'm being presented with something that isn't the truth, and I'm having to wrestle and discern and to discover, is this really truth? And we're living in a world of what seems like ambiguity, but really it's just a different algorithm that we need to break through and find what is true. And the Apostle John, or excuse me, John the Baptist knew kind of what the Messiah would look like, was pretty confident of what the Messiah would look like, but he found himself in a moment in time where he was beginning to doubt what he knew to be true at one time. Have you ever found yourself there? Where, where you started out believing something to be true about God, believing something about God, all of a sudden you're confronted with a situation or a season or a time or a pandemic and you're like, I don't know, is God really good? Everything was going good, but all of a sudden gas prices skyrocket and getting fuel is difficult and the price of everything goes up and you're like, yeah, but is God really about that abundant life? Does God really care about the lilies of the field? Because it seems like those lilies are getting really expensive these days. And, and we find ourselves in moments where we have doubts, where we have questions, where we have uncertainty. And we find ourselves often not only in moments of doubt, but perhaps moments of skepticism. 
where we hear truth on one level, but then we're like, yeah, but my experience tells me differently than maybe what you're telling me. And, and maybe it's not even so much about the skepticism or the doubt. Maybe we're full on in a mode where we felt like we understood God, but then we get to, to, to college or we get to another place and place in our life and we begin to deconstruct everything that we once knew. And this word deconstruction is a, is a word that is um, running rampant in our culture today. Where you have so many people going public trying to say that they once followed Jesus and they once were a part of this church and they once were doing here. But they, they've now lived an enlightened life and their eyes have been opened to the fall, fallacies and the, the lack of truth and how the Bible can't be trusted and this isn't true. And what I was handed was this and what I handed was And they begin to deconstruct and on one hand, deconstruction can be good if it leads to reconstruction in the right way. But deconstruction that never reconstruction isn't deconstruction, it's destruction. Amen. We have a lot of times in our lives where we find ourselves in moments of doubts and skepticism and wonderings and difficulties and, and challenges in our lives. And we want to deconstruct something, but if we're doing it by ourselves or we're left in isolation or we don't have the right person to go to and ask the right question, and we never reconstruct then we're living in a life that was built on sand and it crashed anyways. And I'm not so sure that in our world today that people who are exiting quote unquote the faith and leaving the faith, I'm not sure that they ever had faith. Perhaps they just had a set of beliefs that they agreed with and they called it faith. See, see because faith isn't about a belief. Faith is about a loyal commitment to give your allegiance to a man named Jesus. I've been thinking about this question this week. Nowhere in scripture are we told that we're supposed to like Jesus. Okay. Well, I like what Jesus said here. I like what he did here. I like this Jesus. I like this. I like that. Scripture actually commands us to follow him. Not necessarily like him. Because there are moments and times in our lives where what Jesus is leading us to do and what Jesus is asking us to do is quite challenging and I don't like it. And it's in that moment I have to decide if I'm consuming a belief system that is built on a God crafted in my own image or am I allowing the image of Jesus to be seen and known and that's what I'm following. In his book, After Doubt, author A.J. Swoboda um, writes this, he says, God doesn't fit himself into my expectations. God is God. And in the words of Paul, the apostle, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God, Romans 9.20. God is God despite our beliefs about him. As William Alfred once said, people who tell me there is no God are like six-year-old boys saying there is no such thing as passionate love. They just haven't experienced it. Just because we don't believe um, doesn't mean it isn't true. And so we must begin with a desire for the God who is, not a, not a God of the desire who we want. Do we want that God or do we want our own creation that will say what we wish God would say? We know we're worshiping God when our beliefs about God are, su are, are subject to God. In other words, the sign of idolatry is when our beliefs have no room for God who has been revealed in the scriptures. Do we want a God who has been revealed in scriptures or are we looking for a God who fits into our beliefs and what we feel like God would say and do versus the reality of who God is? 
This is the question John asked Jesus. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or, or should we keep looking for someone else? Are you the Messiah? Are you God? Are you the one that we've read about and heard about and thought about? Like, like I want to believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. I think we can take some great comfort in this moment because... Maybe many of us, like the Apostle John, who have been around the things of God, been around the kingdom of God even, been around some of these things, but yet we still find ourselves with doubts. Friends, having doubts doesn't mean you don't have faith. just means you have doubts. Having doubts doesn't mean you don't have faith. Having faith doesn't mean you don't have doubts. There are things that I have doubts about, but yet my faith goes beyond my doubts and my loyal allegiance still remains faithful to the one who is Jesus. I've got doubts. I've got questions. I got things that I don't really know all the answers to. I got, I got stuff that I want to figure out, things that I once thought I figured out, but I'm not sure I figured out anymore. There is an always ever-growing understanding, and oftentimes the different seasons of life that you find yourself in brings a different perspective on some things of God, and sometimes they strengthen our belief, and sometimes they cause us to live in a tension that isn't solved, and we're sitting there wondering, but yet we still choose to worship even though we wonder, what about X. John found himself in a moment of doubt, in a moment of wonder, in a moment of question, and it's a very legitimate question. And I think we can be comforted in the fact that God, that Jesus, God in the flesh, when confronted and asked a question of sincerity, did not squash the person who is asking the question. He didn't look at John and say, John, you're an idiot. Get it together. Don't you know what the Bible says? And it's this. And because the Bible says so, that's what we believe. And that's it. It's not Jesus' response. Jesus responds in a much more tender, caring, and inviting way. He invited John to, into a discovery process. He didn't invite John into a set of doctrines and beliefs that he, either he gets on board with right now or he doesn't come back ever again. You know what I love about Faith Church? Faith Church is this space where it really is okay to belong and to be around here even if you haven't got all your beliefs figured out yet. Because I have, a, I have a, a sneaky belief. It's not really sneaky. It's really prof- not even profound. I, what am I trying to say? I have a, I have a very uh, upfront belief that if you will just come be around the people of God as we explore scripture together, God's going to make himself real to you. You got doubts? Come on. You're not sure that you want to submit your lifestyle to Jesus. It's all right. Come along. Let's watch and see what God can do. Just come and see as you find yourself face to face with Jesus and the people of God who are in passionate pursuit of that God and watch what happens in your heart as you go along. I think many of us live in this moment. But the question is, what do we do when we find ourselves with some doubts. What, what do we do when we found ourselves in moments when life has great disappointments and we're finding ourselves deeply disappointed with how life is going? What do we do when we find ourselves discouraged? Not sure that there's hope. Not sure of what's next. And, and the questions that we have outweigh the response and the answers that we think we found. What do we do when we have so much wondering that we find it hard to worship? 
What, what do we do in these moments? I want to give us four things today that I think the text kind of points us in a direction on what we can do with our doubts. And, and maybe you're somebody sitting in the room, you're like, I don't, I don't really have doubts. I mean, I've walked with the Lord for a long time. I'm pretty confident what I believe and where I'm going. Yeah, yeah. This isn't necessarily maybe about you. Maybe you've walked through your own deconstruction and you've reconstructed a new faith and there's an assurance of some things and you don't have some doubts. That's great. Somebody around you might have some doubts though. And if you don't properly respond to them when they have doubts, you could be the one that helps damage the remaining faith that they do have. And we don't, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be that. No, we're called to be disciples who make disciples. And so once I learn something of the Lord, I want to help walk other people through what they have learned and what they can learn and help be gracious and kind and compassionate as we go along together. Here's the first thing that I want us to do. When we find ourselves with doubts, disappointments, discouragement, we have to check our surrender within our assignment. Sometimes the place that we find ourselves in life makes us want to pick up our own selfishness. But what God is needing us to do is to walk with more surrender. John was walking out his calling and assignment to prepare the way for Jesus. But he found himself in prison as a result of it. In jail. About to lose his head. Literally. No wonder he's got doubts. Because he had an expectation of his assignment to lead to the Messiah coming and, and ruling and reigning. And he had prepared the way, but yet he was in prison while his cousin was on the outside. I think it's oftentimes when, when life and seasons get tough, we have to double down on our surrender. We have to check our assignment. What is my assignment? Friends, your assignment in life is temporary. Not every assignment is permanent for all eternity. Let me give you an example. Your assignment as a parent is temporary, and you are accountable for that temporary season as parent. <laughs> this is going to go over so well. <laughs> I love it. Some of you are like, what? Hold on. I thought this is it. Here we go. Are you ready? Just, just buckle up. At the end of the day, if you think your assignment is, as a parent is that you become the hero of your children, then you have the wrong assignment according to Scripture. Your assignment as a parent is not to be the hero or heroine of their story. Your assignment as a parent is to correctly point them to Jesus. No, but I want them to be my friend and to like me and to this and to that. And I want them to do what they want. And, and we just don't parent well anymore because we forget our assignment and our role in our assignment. We think it's just to give them what they want and to make sure everything is happy and to whatever their preferences. There's no, 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 parents, you see a direction and that direction of their life ought to be moving towards Jesus. And we need to do what is necessary to help navigate and point them to Jesus. That's our assignment. Not to be the hero, not to be the center of the story, not to be the one that they love and they weep and they follow and all of these things and the adulation that may come as a result but if you will recognize your assignment it is a temporary assignment but it is your assignment nonetheless and sometimes when the assignment gets really tough we want to bail on the assignment but Jesus never said going and walking the way of the cross would be comfortable or easy when times get tough hang in there 
Double down on your surrender to the call and the assignment that God has on your life. This is where Jesus found John, and he was reminding John of some things of his assignment. And he, he did. He said, John, you've prepared the way. It was well. You did great. We have to remind ourselves in moments of doubt and disappointment, we have to check our level of surrender within the context of our assignment, not someone else's assignment. Oh, how when times get tough, it's easy to start looking around, isn't it? Somebody, oh man, look at that. I wish I had that assignment. I wish that was my life. I wish I could go there. I wish I could do this. I wish I was called to that. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. And we start living out a fantasy of someone else's assignment. John needed to remember that he had a role and an assignment to play. His role was not to be the Savior. His role was to announce that the Savior was coming. And as his assignment was beginning to end, as it was on the the sunset of his assignment, he began to wonder, did I do it right? Is it right? Is this the right one? Or is there someone else to come? And I think he needed to hear the whisper of Jesus that, John, you did great. Way to go, buddy. When you surrender in your assignment, you will always hear the whisper of the Lord saying, that's the point. Well done. Because it's not the results that Jesus was after in John's life. It was the surrender and the faithfulness within the assignment that Jesus is after. We have to check our surrender. Here's the second thing we can do. When we find ourselves doubting and wondering and questioning and wrestling, we get to refresh our gratitude. We get to refresh our gratitude. This is what Jesus does. He goes and he says, hey, um, I know John's got this question. Why don't you go back and tell him all the good things you have seen? The blind here, the lame walk, this and that. Then, then Jesus goes on a long rant of giving praise and honoring John for all that he did. He's giving and expressing gratitude. Gratitude has a way of helping us get beyond the moment of doubt and discouragement and lift our eyes up and see it for the right perspective that we need. You have to refresh your gratitude expectations and gratitude always go hand in hand. If you are experiencing disappointment and a discouragement in your life, can I just plead with you, begin to practice daily gratitude. Just begin to, this is what I'm grateful for today. When life gets tough and you start to wonder and you're doubting, you, you want to start pointing fingers at all the problems and you want to start pointing out all the things that they did wrong and how it's not this and it's not just start to give gratitude, endless gratitude. You know, you know one of the reasons why I think John was struggling with his own doubt is because that he saw Jesus doing ministry different stylistically than John did. It's easy to start to get critical when people do things in a style that's different than yours. My wife does things differently than I do. And if I don't choose to look at those with eyes of gratitude, I will start to gripe about them. Oh, I'm not giving you any examples because I want to sleep in my own bed tonight, friends. <laughs> just say, I'm just trying to help us with some things. When we feel discouraged, you know what it's easy to do? Start pointing out all of the problems. We don't need more problem pointers. That's not our assignment in the kingdom. 
There's a lot of things that I could point out about other churches that I don't like or I don't agree with or even doctrinally. But at the end of the day, I will not get caught up griping about style things. I'm going to look for my own life, my own ministry, my own way of doing things, the way I follow Jesus to have some substance to it. And I'm not going to get caught up in the petty things as it relates to style. John had a complete, John was like bold and a little brass and probably quite snarky, really confrontational. Jesus was not so. Jesus wasn't afraid to cut, say, speak truth. He, he spoke what he needed. He made people think, but he went around doing it differently. <laughs> I love how Jesus uh, tells this little parable about the kids dancing in the streets. They sing this song and they do this thing. And John came fasting and preaching hard and people were like yeah that's demon possessed that's not of God and then Jesus comes and he's feasting and he's hanging out with with sinners and they call him a drunkard and a glutton and in other words sometimes you're never gonna please those who have a scornful heart because when we're after a God crafted in our own image we'll never be satisfied anyways and Jesus was saying, you wanted this and he did this. That wasn't good. You tried this and it didn't work. Listen here, Goldilocks. Jesus and the Father in heaven aren't coming for your opinion of what God looks like. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Either you can get on board and surrender and follow and choose to believe it or you can not. Just know that there's dangers on the other side if you choose the way of unbelief instead of belief. And Jesus says, if you'll just begin with some gratitude, I think Jesus demonstrates this beautifully for us. When you're feeling discouraged about life and you're listening to yourself and you sound a little bit too much like Oscar the Grouch, it's time to refresh your gratitude and start listing some things to be thankful for. Here's, the, here's another thing. What do we do with our doubts and our discouragement and our questions? I think we have to give away what we do know. There may be a lot of things that you don't know, but I think when you choose to participate and give away what you do know, there is something special that transpires in that moment. And when you start to give away and walk with someone else through their own life, when you begin to, to share life with someone else, even if it's just a little bit, you begin to have more patience for other people who are still in process and still wrestling and wondering and have questions and doubts too. But until you begin to give away what you do know, until you give away and invite someone else into the process, there, there's this sense of um, bodies of water that have no outlet are not considered fresh water, are they? They're, they're, just, they're just stuck and all sorts of weird things can grow in them. But where there's an outlet to that, where, where there's something that is poured out, this, there's movement that occurs. There's something that gets refreshed and, and, and in your life because there's an outlet for it. If you are coming to church and following Jesus in a way that is purely consumer driven, you are missing out on the real life spring of the spirit in your life. And that's why we serve 
serve and we give and we help others along and we invite people to XO and we invite them to come to church and we go, go through growth track and, and we take steps to invite people to church and we, we, we start connect groups and we invite people to our connect groups and we're always willing to walk with other people. We're saying hello on Sunday morning beforehand. We're intentionally meeting new people. There, there is an, a willingness to have an outflow and, and something happens when we give away what we do know that which we don't know begins to be answered in the process. Why? Why? Because when you're faithful with little, the Lord says he'll give you more. So when you're faithful to give away what you do know, then you position yourself in a place that God can trust you to know more than what you do know. And so if you have doubts and you have worries and you have concerns and you're not sure about some things, start to walk with someone else. And teach them what you do know about God. Teach them what you do. Pastor, I don't know anything other than to show up on Sunday and to listen and take notes. Great. Bring someone else along who just shows up on Sunday, takes notes, and is a part of the people of God. Start with what you do know and watch God grow in you and help you know more. Help you grow more. This is so much what Jesus did. You know why we don't give away what we do know sometimes, though? I said it earlier. I think there is a difference between being skeptical and being scornful. We all have moments where we, we're, we're skeptical about things, where, where our experience isn't lining up with our expectations. And if we're not careful, our hearts can grow hard and we move beyond just a sense of skepticism, of willingness to explore and wonder and question. And, and, and we start to be scornful in what we do. In other words, there's a difference between asking questions and questioning things. When you ask a question, there's a, there's a posture of desired learning and knowledge and understanding. But often we ask questions very sarcastically. We're not actually looking for the answers. We're just trying to be scornful. And there's a difference. And Jesus didn't rebuke John because he was scornful, because he was skeptical. There was a sincere question that John was asking. John wasn't trying to make some backhanded, passive-aggressive statement of sarcasm with some meme about, oh, this is the Jesus that you believe. No, he wasn't trying to do any of those things because John's heart wasn't scornful, but he did have some skepticism to it. He wanted to make sure... He wanted to make sure he knew. Here's the last thing. What do we do with our doubts, our discouragement, our disheartened moments? We check our source. We check the source. What did John do with his questions? He didn't go to the Sanhedrin. He didn't ask his fellow people who were with him, his peers. He asked someone who knew more than him. He, he took it straight to Jesus. He took it straight to Jesus. What, what did Jesus have to say about this? What did Jesus want? How did Jesus want to respond? When you have doubts, when you are uncertain, when you have questions, you need to make sure you are checking the source that you are going to. Make sure you're going to the right place. Why? Because <laughs> just because you read it on the internet doesn't make it true. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we need the whole word of God. Well, you know what Jesus did? When 
in order to help answer John's question, he didn't just say, what have you seen? What have you experienced? What, what have you experienced in life? He took what he, he had experienced in life and he lined it up against the backdrop of the Old Testament. Yes. This is what was prophesied, John. This is what the Old Testament, this is what the scriptures that you know to be true, that you hold to be true, and how it lines up and you are seeing it in your life. I am very, very weary of professional theologians who do not have a lived out practice theology. People who are proclaimed experts on something but not practitioners of that thing, I'm just like, yeah, that might be true, but you ain't in the game anymore. I had a friend send me a YouTuber one time and he said, hey, what do you think about this, this guy? I said, well, I, I don't, um, I've watched some of his videos, and to be honest, he's, he's got some interesting things that he's exploring and examining, but I get a little weary of people who get paid to give their opinion. Get a little weary of people who aren't in the game, building church, building people, building, building relationships, serving the people in their community, and who sit behind a camera and tell other people who are building church how they should be building church. It's kind of like people who just got married standing as experts on how you should do marriage. It's like, you know, you're barely six months in. Like, the word honeymoon has barely left your mouth. Why don't you live life a little bit and then we can have a conversation? You have to check the source that you're going to. Are you looking for someone to tell you what you already are assuming to be right? Or are you going to the source and allowing God to speak clearly to who you are? Jesus warns the danger of going to wrong sources and wrong places and getting contaminated information. Jesus says, he, Jesus warns us about just going off our experience. Because there were, there were cities where he had done the miracles and they still chose not to believe. There were cities that went where he presented truth and brought truth to it all and they still chose not to believe. There are moments and things in our lives if we have to be careful, friends, to not allow our lived experiences become the true litmus test for what is true of who God is. We have to check our source. We have to, we have to go back to the, the source of some things. We don't want to live a life where we have a form of godliness, but deny the very power of God. Where, where we say all the right things, do all the right things, all of our doctrine is nice and tidy and pretty, and we've got a bow around it, and we can call it this and call it that, but yet we're not living any different. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus had two, two specific disciples, Peter and Judas, both of them had moments where they deeply doubted. Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. One of them was restored in their belief, in their faith, in the relationship. One of them just destroyed their own life. There is a difference, friends, between having doubts like Peter and choosing unbelief like Judas.
Judas decided to change what he believed. He, he had this posture in his heart that says, I, I won't believe that he's the son of God. He's not doing it right. It's not what he, I thought it was all about. It's, I, I'm, I'm not believing anymore. And, and he rejected. And his life was destroyed. Two disciples, close front seat, walking with Jesus for three years, saw it all. Saw more in their life than you and I get to see. Both wrestled with doubts. One of them led to a moment of repentance. The other one led to a moment of rejection. This is what Jesus is after in our lives and in our hearts. This is what he's coming after. James says it like this. Even the demons believe that Jesus is God. But it's not enough to save their souls. Why? While they believe and know the truth about God, they have yet to give their allegiance to God. They believe all the right things. They're just not giving their loyal love to God in surrender, repentance. They've just rejected and chosen. I might know the things, but I'm choosing to believe something else anyways. I want to read you a passage from the book After Doubt uh, by A.J. Swoboda. I referenced some things earlier, but he succinctly says some things that I want to penetrate into our hearts today as we wrestle with our own discouragement, our own doubts, our own wonderings. Our, our, what about this? What about that? Because we all have moments where we're going to have questions, uncertainty, where, where situations in our life start to squeeze us. He says this, it's imperative that we don't receive or pass along a fractured Bible. Jesus tells his disciples something similar. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus was telling the disciples to pass along all he had said, not just parts that prop up our current ways of living. The worst forms of deconstruction are those that pass along a form of Christianity that fits our privilege, power, and current experiences. We pass along a version of faith that reflects our sensibilities more than God's heart. But the human soul needs all of God's revelation and all of the Bible, not the parts that conveniently fit. Or else we will, be subtly, we will subtly massage our values into scripture rather than letting it va- its values shape us. We're all complicit in this. We all, like Thomas Jefferson, selectively slice out the parts of Scripture we find offensive to our culture, sensibilities, and time. But the big problem with the deconstructed gospel is that it lacks the message others may so desperately need. And this includes the very message we need to be confronted by. Whenever we oppress the Bible message, we end up oppressing others. This, in turn, unhinges our trust in what God has said, and it places it back on ourselves. To paraphrase Augustine, if we believe what we like in the Gospels and we reject what we don't like, it's not the Gospel we believe, but ourselves. This is a critical point for students who come into my class who reject the Bible because they think it endorses slavery. I do a whole lecture on Jefferson and the slave Bibles. Expectedly, I have a few students each year claim they can't trust the Bible because it was used to perpetuate slavery. Then I show them the hymns of the slaves. Guess what they reveal? Hymn after hymn filled with promises of freedom found in scripture. The slaves hope in God and freedom rested on the Bible. The same book used by the slave owners to perpetuate their evil. One twisted the Bible for either the other found hope and freedom within it. 
Each semester I proposed the same thing. The real tool of oppression was a deconstructed, redacted, and edited Bible. The actual Bible was a tool for freedom. The actual Bible gave endless hope to the slaves. To deconstruct the Bible would be to rob the slaves of the only hope that they had. The minute we say that the Bible is wrong, we better be prepared to go back and cut out everything that Martin Luther King Jr. said and where he found his entire hope. The Bible isn't the problem. We're the problem. You can imagine God's anger. We need to return to the actual whole Bible and reject our deconstructed versions of the Bible that preach half the truth. I tell my students this. The institution of slavery didn't end because people stopped reading the Bible. The institution of slavery started to end because people finally started reading the whole Bible. Somewhere along the winding road of church history, we stopped reading the whole Bible for the whole world. Today, conservatives turn a blind eye to those parts of the Bible dealing with God's heart for social change, about turning swords into plowshares, about the love and care of creation, about God's heart for the refugee as Jesus himself was a refugee. All the while, progressives cover their ears to those parts of the Bible dealing with the inherent value of every life, born and unborn. It's, it's consistent themes of sexual purity and holiness, personal repentance, and evangelism. Shocking. Both sides ignore the parts that they aren't doing. But what if we let the whole Bible speak? If I, a white Christian male, were to take elements of someone else's culture and use them for my own purpose, they would call it cultural appropriation. But if I take the ancient writings of the Bible and change them to fit my purpose with no regard for the intent with which they were written, they call me enlightened and evolved. How could this be? Deconstructing Christianity can be, more than anything else, a sign of our privilege. Consider the story of John Mitbidi an African Christian who was known to be able to heal. Mbidi was one of the first African pastors to travel to Europe and earn a doctorate in theology. Almost 10 years later, he returned to Africa after his European education, but he came back different. He had been taught by the Europeans that all of that supernatural, miraculous stuff was nothing more than myth and superstition. He had become enlightened by Europe. It was said that when he returned, he no longer had the power that he once had. He no longer prayed for healing. The people reportedly said, what is the use of studying in Europe before you can heal people? Now you can't. We can be enlightened or we can heal. What if we can't do both? At the tail end of my own deconstruction journey, he says, I visited an African Muslim nation on a cultural exchange. When we arrived, our team was told that there was only 25 known Christians in the city of 1 million where we were staying. Our host told us that these radical Christians who experienced extreme poverty, persecution, and social shaming for following Jesus shared one Bible and a broken guitar and met secretly under the cover of night. With their half-broken guitar, they sang simple songs to Jesus and loved one another, giving their very lives for the gospel. As the leader of the trip, I asked if we could meet these underground African Christians. I was so excited to see these people loving God and their element, but I was grieved when they told us we couldn't meet with them. Their reason was simple. They don't want our consumerist, America-centric enlightenment faith to rub off on the African Christians. 
Our form of faith, they told us, was toxic for African Christians. They didn't want our enlightenment to rub off on them. That utterly broke me. That night, under the dark of the Tunisian sky, I lay there thinking about the 25 Christians who were awake, praying, hoping, reading, and singing quietly. Their hope was in Jesus and nothing else. Friends, as we get ready to come to the table of the Lord, my prayer for you, wherever you're at in your journey, is that after all of your own doubts, after all of your own devastation in life, after all of your own pain, after your wondering, my prayer is that your faith in Jesus would still remain that your life would be built on him. When rain comes and winds blow, that your house, your life would be built on Jesus. Would you stand as we come to the table? If you would, go ahead and open up the elements that you may have received on your way in. You can pull the top layer out, get the bread out, and then flip it around and get the juice out. For those of you that are serving, maybe you need to be in a spot at the prayer spot or at the door. You can go ahead and and begin moving there at this time. And while, while they're getting in place, I just want you to begin to quiet your own heart and soul and mind. Would you just close your eyes for a minute? One of the ways we deal with our own doubts and our own discouragement is we said we refresh our gratitude. One of the words for communion is Eucharist which simply means thanksgiving. As we come to the table today, we have a moment to just say thanks to Jesus because he faithfully loved us even when we were unsure about him ourselves. And for that, we get to say thank you. Jesus, we just whisper whisper, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the bread that represents your body and the juice which represents your blood. Lord, together these elements represent your life that you gave up for us. So Lord, help us to give up our lives in full pursuit of you, even when we have doubts, even when we're unsure. May our faith be in you, Jesus. Lord, we have reaffirmed those things today. And we thank you. Thank you for this bread. Let's take it together. Thank you for your blood that forgives us and cleanses us from our sins. We're grateful. Let's take the juice together. Father, today I pray for my friends and family, those gathered here in this room and those watching online. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us and keep us. Lord, you would make your face shine on us and be gracious to us. You lift your countenance towards us and give us peace. I pray, Lord, that today, everywhere we go, we would be reminded that you radically love us and that you gave yourself for us. And in return, we can surrender our life to you.
Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If you're if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see it in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.